0: Well, good morning to you. I see many familiar faces from days gone by, and it's always a delight to come back to Gray CPC and uh, not only for you to host the Navigator Conference on Friday night and Saturday morning, but also to enjoy the time with you here in your worship service. I've been coming for many years and see the familiar faces. And so it's just a pleasure for me to be back here with you uh, today. My wife is at the Comfort Inn, hopefully we will be here for the second service. She awakened this morning with uh, a sore jaw. She's just had a uh, a tooth um, prepped for a crown, and that's where all the hard work is, is in the prepping part. But... Uh, I was a little sore this morning, so I gave her some uh, pain reliever pills and said, take these and take two more just before you come to church. So we trust that she'll be here with us uh, in that second session. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42? And the text for this morning is rather short. Just one verse of Scripture but it packs a powerful punch. Isaiah 42, verse 21. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. Several months ago, I was turning in my Bible to Isaiah chapter 42 because verse 16 is one of what I call my go-to verses. Uh, it says... I will lead the blind in the way that they do not know. And in paths they have not known, I will guide them. And many years ago, uh, when I was struggling with a theological issue in one of the books that I was writing, and I wanted to be true to Scripture and the meaning of Scripture, and um, I can remember uh, sitting in the airport terminal in Salt Lake City, Utah, and praying over that. And this verse of Scripture came to my mind. I will lead the blind in ways that they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. And so ever since then, when I have just come up against a a question that I have a real problem on, or not knowing how to address it, I I go to this verse and I pray over that verse. And I say, Lord, I come to you as one is blind and do not know. And I just ask that you would guide me. And God has graciously answered that prayer on many occasions. So several months ago, I was in one of those situations. And so I started to turn to Isaiah 42. And as I turned to it, rather than my eye falling on verse 16, my eye just for some reason fell on verse 21. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. And it just seemed as if this verse him off the page and just sort of hit me in the face as if God really wanted to get my attention about this verse. And I remember saying, wow, God wants to magnify his law and make it glorious. And if God wants to do that, then I better do that also. And so I thought I better crank up my obedience to the scripture if I want to magnify his law, because that obviously is the way that we can magnify his law. Now, some people bristle at the meaning or at the mention of the law of God because they mistakenly think that the Apostle Paul sets law against grace as if the law is no good for us anymore. In fact, I've even seen one instance where uh, Romans 6.14 is misquoted. Uh, It says, You are not under law but under grace, And the person said, see there, I'm no longer under the law, so it doesn't matter how I live. But Paul was by no means opposed to the law of God. In fact, in Romans 7, verse 12, he says that the law is holy and righteous and good. So the Apostle Paul is not opposed to the law as such. What he is opposed to is thinking that we can attain or earn our righteous standing before God by our own obedience rather than by trusting in Christ for our righteous standing before the Father. That's what Paul is opposed to. He is not opposed to the law as such. In fact, he wants us to obey the law. So as I thought about this passage, I thought, why was God pleased to magnify his law? And the reason is because God's law is a reflection of his own character. When God gives us his law, he is saying, be holy as I am holy. Be like me. And in fact, we find in Romans 8, uh, 29, that God has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So God is very much interested in the law as it applies to us, what is the law for us today? It's all the moral commands in the Bible. It's not just the Ten Commandments, or even what we call the the wider law of Moses, but the moral imperatives in the New Testament, particularly in the letters of Paul and Peter, are just as much the law of God as is the Ten Commandments. In fact, you might say that those moral imperatives in the New Testament. Or simply fleshing out the meaning of the Ten Commandments. And so God got my attention that morning as I looked at this verse and I thought, I better give attention to this. Well, how can I honor the law? And as I've said, it's by obedience to it. This is the only way that I can honor God's law is by obeying it. But then I decided to you know, if I really want to understand this passage, to read its context. And by the way, let me just insert here a word. Uh, That's always point number one in understanding Scripture is to consider the Scripture in its context. And so here's a single verse that smacked me in the face, and I wanted to see what the context is in order to get the true meaning of it. And so as I read starting um, in verse 18 and 19, God is chastising the people. In fact, listen to these two verses. Hear you, deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send. And here he's referring to the Jewish people. And he's saying, uh, in regard to my law, they are blind and they're deaf. They do not see I have commanded. They do not listen to my word. Rather than honoring God's law, they ignored it. They dishonored it by disobedience to God's law. In fact, Paul comments on this in Romans 2.24 when he says, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God had set aside the nation of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, to, um, instead of bringing the Gentiles in, they were to go out, they were to spread the good news by, by the way of their lives and by their obedience to the law of God. And that would be attractive to the pagan people. But instead of doing that, they disregarded God's law, they disobeyed it. To use the words of the text here, they were deaf and they were blind to it. And so God says in verse 7 and 21, God was pleased to magnify his law. It's as if God is saying, you folks have not magnified my law. In fact, you have dishonored my law, but I'm going to magnify my law. It pleases me for my righteousness sake to magnify my law and make it glorious. This is God's response to the disobedience of the nation of Israel. So how will God magnify his law? Well, 700 years will elapse before he does anything. Now, you would think in reading this that God says, you guys just look at me and see what I do, and that there would be an immediate response. But instead, the 700 years go by, 300 years, 300 years in which God consistently sends to the people his prophets to warn them and to chastise them and to urge them to obedience and nothing availed. And then there was 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ. And God was apparently silent in those days. So 700 years elapsed before God did anything. But then in the fullness of time... God did something. God sent his own son to magnify his law and to make it glorious. Well, how did he do this? Well, the first way that Jesus magnified the law was through his absolutely perfect obedience. Jesus, from the time of his birth until his crucifixion, lived about 33 years on this planet and during those entire 33 years, he never once sinned. Now, I could take a moment to document that, but let me just say that Paul and Peter and the writer of Hebrews and the Apostle John, all in their letters, consistently use the, the idea that Jesus was sinless. He knew no sin, he committed no sin, so forth. And in fact, Jesus himself um, said in John, chapter uh, 8. He said, I always do the things that please the Father. He testified to his own uh, awareness of himself, and he says, I have lived a life of perfect obedience. But perhaps the greatest testimony of all to the sinlessness, or to put it in a positive way, the perfect obedience of Jesus were the words of God the Father himself as he spoke from heaven First, at the baptism of Jesus, as Jesus is about to begin his public ministry, and at this time he's lived 30 years. And let me just stop and say that he did not live those 30 years in a morally sterile environment. Jesus was from a large family. He had four brothers, or really half-brothers. In fact, they're named in the Scripture, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas— And then, uh, excuse me, ladies, but the sisters are not named. It just says all his sisters. So Jesus grew up in a large family. And I'm sure that those brothers and sisters were good Jews, but they were sinners like you and I. They were born with a sinful nature. And so they did by no means live sinless lives. In fact, even toward the end of Jesus' public ministry just shortly before he was to be crucified. He's going up to, uh, to Jerusalem and his brothers said to him, why don't you go up there and manifest yourself? And in a sense they're kind of mocking him. And John says in John 7 verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus has lived a life of almost 33 years now, growing up with them. And they are aware of his ministry and so forth, and still they did not believe. So I say that to say, Jesus did not grow up in an easy situation. He grew up in a family, a large family of siblings, all of whom to some degree were sinners, as you and I are. But despite that, the Father could testify at his baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, And again shortly before the crucifixion, several months before, as Jesus and three of the disciples go up to what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was transfigured so that these disciples were able to see him in all of his glory. And again avoid the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. God the Father could not have said that if there had been one single instance of sin in the 33-year life of Jesus. And so Jesus honored the law. Jesus magnified the law and made it glorious by his perfect obedience to it. But you and I, like the Jews of Isaiah's time, have not magnified God's law. On the one hand, we have often ignored it, And at other times we've deliberately disobeyed it. Excuse me. And we see this in the prayer of confession that we prayed even this morning. Now, all laws, even traffic laws, even football laws, have sanctions. If you're offside, you get penalized five yards. That's a sanction if you disobey the speed limit grossly and and, you know uh, I mentioned to the students the other night um, the highway patrol gives us a few miles above the speed limit it's what they call grace which is really not grace but anyway uh, we disobey the speed limit and so forth but all laws have sanctions and eventually If you drive so many miles, say more than 10 miles above the speed limit and you pass the highway patrol, you're going to get stopped and you're going to get a ticket. Suppose that somebody is just grossly disobedient to the speed limit. I've seen this. In fact, just a few months ago, I saw it in a city where Jane and I were visiting. And basically it's this. This is a high speed driver. Well, let me change the geography from. Where I was to Colorado Springs, where we live i twenty five between Denver and Colorado springs, the speed limit for the most part is seventy five miles an hour now, I personally think that 's too much because if you get the speed limit seventy five people are going to drive eighty or eighty five but that 's another that 's the highway department 's problem that 's just my personal opinion, but that 's the fact the speed limit is seventy five but As you approach Colorado Springs, there's a sign that says, slow down to 65, and it's 65 through the city, still on I-25. So you're going along, and, and you're doing your 75. You're staying within the limit, and a guy just zooms past you. And you know he's doing at least 85. And then he comes to the 65 mile an hour speed limit, and he doesn't slow down at all. He continues to zoom through at 85 miles an hour. Now he's 20 miles over the speed limit. And he is weaving in and out. Uh, the highway is three lanes at that point, And he's continually crossing lanes, getting around cars that are not driving as fast as, as he is. You've, you've seen this. This is what, the picture that's in my mind that I saw just a few months ago. The guy was just going like this. And what do you think? In your mind, you think, I hope the highway patrolman sees him. And so you continue driving, and you get into the city, and lo and behold, there he is. And the highway patrol with its lights flashing or sitting behind him. And what is your reaction? Ah, he's getting what he deserves. That's a sanction. Now, we don't like to think that we're going to get what we deserve, and we would apart from Christ. But the point I want you to see here is you either obey the law or you suffer its penalty, its sanctions. One way you honor the law by your obedience. The other way you honor the law by suffering its sanctions. Now, here's what Jesus did. Jesus did both. He honored the law by his perfect obedience. And then he suffered the sanctions that you and I deserve by his death on the cross to pay for our sins. Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty to suffer the sanctions of our sin. That's why as he hung on the cross, he cried out toward the end of those Three hours of darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cried that out because he was suffering the sanctions of a broken law, the sanctions that we should experience. He is experiencing in our place. And so Jesus lived and died in our place. Now, most of the time we think of Jesus died. In fact, I grew up in a gospel-preaching church, and I, all I ever heard was that Jesus died for me. And that's indeed good news. That means I don't have to suffer the sanctions of God's broken law. But there's more news to that. It's not that he died in my place. Jesus also lived in my place. When he perfectly obeyed the law of God, he did that, as our representative of all who trust in Jesus throughout the ages, Jesus lived and died in our place. As someone has well put it, he lived the life we could not live. Why could we not live it? Because we're born with a sinful nature. We're biased towards sin. And even after we trust Christ and we're given a new heart, there's still that internal guerrilla warfare between the flesh and the spirit, and all of us, if we're honest, testify to that—that that we sin every day in thought, or word, or deed, or motive. But Jesus lived the perfect life. I um, had a series on the Beatitudes um, that I gave at a at a family conference out in, on the West Coast several years ago. And uh, the third of those Beatitudes is blessed are the meek. And a friend of mine who's a business entrepreneur um, wanted a set of the CDs. And so I arranged to have a set sent to him. And uh, he later, he, he listened to them, and then he decided he would listen to them again And as he listened to them the second time, he realized that he had not listened to the one on meekness the first time through. And he realized it was because the first time that he came to that, his reaction was, I don't want to be meek. I mean, after all, by definition, an entrepreneur cannot be meek as we think, as we misthink of the word of meek as illustrated by the old cartoon character, Casper Milk Toast. And he was deeply convicted of the fact that even though Jesus had said, blessed are the meek, that's right out of the word of God, that he didn't want that. And so he called me, and he was all broken up about it. And I said to him, Bob, Jesus was meek in your place. In every area that you have sinned, Jesus was obedient. He lived the life you and I could not live. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. Now, that's a quote from way back someplace. Uh, I can't give you the author. I think I might know, but it's, it's something that we all ought to memorize. He lived the life we could not live and died the death. We deserved to die. And so God magnifies his law by sending his son both to perfectly obey it and thus to honor it and then to suffer its sanctions and again honor it from that perspective. So is there anything left for us to do? Yes, there is. This does not mean that we have no responsibility. And I'm sure when God the Holy Spirit just caused my eyes to fasten on this verse, and, and it was as if it just flew off the page before me, that he was trying to get my attention, the Jerry, you need to work on your obedience. You need to work on magnifying my law by your own personal pursuit of holiness. Now, mind you, 35 years ago, I wrote a book titled The Pursuit of Holiness, and as if God was saying, Jerry, you may have slipped a little bit. Now let's let's get with it. Let's you know be conscientious about seeking to obey the law." Well, why, if Christ has done it all, why should I respond? And the answer is out of gratitude. Two Corinthians five fourteen and fifteen, um, and I'm not going to give you the entire verse, but it says for. The love of Christ controls us to do what? To live not for ourselves, but for him. That is, to seek to live a life of holiness and obedient service. I like the word the King James Version uses there. It says that the love of Christ constrains us. The idea of constraining is sort of like you take a washcloth and you squeeze it to squeeze all the water out. And Paul is saying that he is so overcome by the love of Christ, it's if he's being squeezed together. Not you have to obey, but Christ's love compels him, constrains him to obey. Why? Well, turn with me in your Bibles. I've kept you just on verse Uh, Isaiah 42.21 but now I want you to turn one time to Philippians chapter 3 In in Philippians chapter 3 beginning at verse 4 Paul begins to give his personal testimony and it basically is not how bad he was but how good he was And how that, you know, if anybody could trust in their own performance, certainly he could. But he comes to the place where he realizes he cannot do this. In fact, he counts it all but loss. He looks at all of his track record and he says, it's just rubbish. And then he says in verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, That is not my own personal obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that is the righteousness that God gives, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul said, I've set aside all of my track record, all of my good uh, Jewish resume, all of these things in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness that comes from my own imperfect obedience, but that which comes from God Himself as a gift. And what is this gift? It's imputing or crediting to us the perfect righteousness of the sinless Son of God. Jesus lived in our place, and God takes that righteousness. And he credits it to us. He not only forgives our sin, but he credits us with the perfect obedience of Christ. And Paul looks at his own imperfect obedience, even though it looked very good from a Jewish point of view. And he says, my perfect obedience, or my what I would consider perfect obedience, is just sheer rubbish in the sight of God. But there's something that God gives It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which God gives to us. But then notice, um, he continues on in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, Paul says, I have not arrived yet. It's still, God still has work to do in my life. But he says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead... I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 12 and verse 14, he uses the expression, I press on. And in the, the Greek, the word for that is the same word that is most often translated as persecute. In fact, up in in uh, Verse 6, where he refers to himself as a persecutor of the church, he's using the same word. So it's a very intense word. It's a very strong word. And so when Paul says, I press on, in verse 12, and again, I press on, in verse 14, he's saying, I really work at it. I pursue it. And then in verse 13, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And the picture there is a picture of a runner striving to be the one to cross the finish line first. And if you remember uh, the movie of Eric Little, and where he oftentimes the camera would be at the finish line, and you would see these runners running to, to be the one to break the tape, and you would see the agony on their faces as they strained every muscle and fiber in their body. And this is the expression, this is the picture that Paul paints for us. He says, I pursue it. I strain as a runner, wanting to break the tape. Why? Well, it goes back to verse 9. Because he found a righteousness that was not of his own attainment. A righteousness that at the very best was imperfect, in fact, could be considered rubbish in the sight of God. And instead, he found that perfect righteousness, the righteousness which God gives. And this is the way that you and I can honor and magnify God's law. First of all, by realizing that we cannot do it in ourselves. And so we look to Jesus who has done it in our place. Jesus magnified God's law in our place as our representative. And then out of gratitude for him, realizing that we can never attain to that, but realizing that God has called us to pursue holiness, to be holy as he is holy. In dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit, we press on, we strain forward to work out holiness in our own lives knowing that we will never fully attain, knowing that there will always be sin in our lives every day. But in gratitude for what God has done for Christ, for us in Christ, we press on in our very imperfect way to honor and magnify his law in our own conduct. Shall we pray? Our Father... We want to acknowledge today that so oftentimes, rather than magnifying your law and making it glorious, at best we've ignored it, and at worst we've deliberately disobeyed it. And Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered on the cross in our place for that disobedience. But thank you, Father, that before he went to the cross, he lived those 33 years of perfect obedience. And you take that perfect obedience, that righteousness, and you give it to us. You clothe us in his righteousness. And Father, yet at the same time, even though you've clothed us in his righteousness and and we stand every day in him, we know that in our own life experience, you've called us to pursue holiness. You've said, strive for peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You've said, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Father, may we take seriously your commands to seek holiness. But at the same time, may we rest entirely on the finished work of christ in his life and in his death and then out of gratitude for what you have done for us through him that we might seek to live a life of obedience to the best of our spirit given ability and we pray this in jesus name amen